This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Doug Hoyes is on the line with us. He's a licensed insolvency trustee and co-founder of Hoyes Michelos, a firm in Ontario of licensed insolvency trustees. Uh, Doug has just a wealth of experience, of good financial experience uh, that he's been using for years to help individual folks, not big companies, rebuild their financial future. Uh, we're calling this segment, What 20 Plus Years as a Debt Management Expert Has Taught Me, Doug. I bet it's taught you a lot. Well, it has. And when I first got into this business, I I became a chartered accountant. That's how I started. And I assumed I knew pretty much everything. Because when you graduate from university, you know everything, right? And I think accountants tend to think they know everything. Absolutely. Yeah, well, because we're numbers people, right? Right. You know the numbers. And and, and numbers are facts. You can't can't mess with numbers, right? Exactly. So I kind of had this opinion that, yeah, I know why people get into financial trouble. You know, they spend too much. They're not disciplined. They don't have a budget. And so as I started actually working in the field and actually working with real people, which is what I've been doing, as you said, for for more than the last 20 years, um, one of the requirements of my government license is that I have to keep notes of the assessments that I do. In Canada, before you can file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, proposal, you have to meet in person with a licensed insolvency trustee, someone such as, such as Blair or myself. So I keep notes of those meetings, and I started going back and reading them. And over the last 20 years, I've met with you know, well over 10,000 people, so I had lots of notes to read. And I realized that, yeah, in some cases, people just did spend too much money. It was clearly their own fault. But in the vast majority of cases, that wasn't the case at all. They had got into trouble because they thought they were doing the right thing. You know, they thought that buying a, a brand new car was the way to go because my warranty costs will be less, or they thought that uh, buying the biggest house possible was the correct answer because then I'll make the most money, and it ended up getting them into trouble. And so that's when I started to realize, oh, okay, so maybe there is a bit bit more to this. And you know that that's one of the reasons I'm really happy to be a licensed insolvency trustee. As you said, I'm I'm not working with corporations. I'm working with actual people who maybe have gotten a little bit sidetracked, um, thought they were doing the right thing, but got into trouble. And so by showing them some some different techniques to to uh, stay out of trouble and and deal with the debts that they've got, it's it's very fulfilling. It's it's great work to be doing. So because you've talked to so many people, what did you say, 10,000 over the years? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have accumulated, along with your data, uh, the, the trends, the, the debt management trends that have sort of come and gone over that period of time. Which ones are, well, let's do it in two parts. Which ones have come and gone, which you remember very clearly and now don't exist anymore, and then which ones are still very prevalent today? Well, when I think back 30 years ago when I first graduated from university, most debt management was being done by credit counselors. They were the, the dominant players in the industry. You had debt problems, you went and talked to a credit counselor. And they still exist. There's still some very good ones out there, but they are 
they're they're not as prevalent as they used to be. And one of the reasons for that is uh, debt levels are so high that it's difficult for a not-for-profit credit counselor to just work out a deal with the people you owe money to. It's much more likely now that you have to go and talk to a licensed insolvency trustee to do something like a consumer proposal. Um, credit counselors are great if you owe $10,000 because they can work out a plan, pay a couple hundred bucks a month and, and deal with it. But um, my average client owes over $50,000 in unsecured debt. So it's not possible to just work out a plan where you pay it all back in a couple of years. That's just too much money. And so a consumer proposal becomes a much more viable option. So I think to answer your question, um, there are the, the prevalence of uh, not-for-profit credit counselors is much less today than it's been in the past. And I think it's interesting, too, that you pointed out that it's the amount of debt uh, that folks have today. That's what's changed the situation, or at least the trend, in terms of a council doesn't help anymore, and really we need to go to you or Blair uh, to get the kind of help that's actually really good help, and it's consistent, and it's solid, and it's actually going to end up doing something at the end of it. Yeah, and, and Blair could comment, because I'm sure he sees exactly the same thing, but just think about that. If you owed fifty or $60,000, and if it was on things like credit cards and bank loans, well, with all the interest, to pay that off on your own, it could, you know, I mean, that, that could be 100000 bucks you're paying back over a five or six or seven year period. It's just a massive amount of money that if you owe that and your, your income doesn't support it, you just can't pay it back. Whereas with a consumer proposal, okay, let's take the 60000 that you owe and offer 20000 to the people you owe the money to. That's a deal that in some cases, in a lot of cases, they'll be willing to accept. That's much more affordable. And again, that's something only a licensed insolvency trustee can do. That's not something that uh, you know a, a debt consultant can can handle for you because it's a legally binding legal solution and they've become much more more prevalent in fact today uh, certainly in Ontario and I believe in British Columbia as well there are actually more consumer proposals filed than personal bankruptcy so that's a, another significant trend we're seeing yeah so definitely Doug um, you know it's about two-thirds uh, for our practice and you know similar within the practice or sorry, within the province of consumer proposals over bankruptcy so definitely it's it's the more dominant choice these days. And you're completely spot on when I sit down with somebody, if the debt level is fifty or $60,000, sometimes their proposal payment is actually less than the interest cost every month. So mm-hmm. their actual payment goes down, and they get a payment with an end date, you know, less than five years compared to the never, never plan. Yeah, which is a which is a huge thing, and and I mean, if you look back ten or twenty years, consumer proposals are, almost weren't even a thing. They didn't even come into being until the nineteen nineties. Um, and even you know, if you go back to like the year two thousand, well, maybe ten twenty percent of people were using them. Whereas now, as as Blair says, it's it's by far the dominant option. So so that's good news. That's good news for people in debt. There are actually legal solutions using federal law that can help people deal with their debts. Hey, Doug, I'm wondering your, your perspective on something that I've seen, you know, rather recently here um, on fintech. So, you know, the new financial technology mm-hmm. companies, you know, they're, um, you know, get access to your credit score and then you borrow from us at, at a low rate. Are you seeing that in your practice? Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue? And what do you think the impact will be on consumers with these new fintech oh, a- absolutely. lenders? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge trend and particularly amongst the millennials. Um, I don't know a lot, whole lot of 80-year-olds who are using mm-hmm. their phone to do to do banking, um, well, I'm not 80, and I'm hardly able to do it myself. So, 
Um, but it's certainly something that the the younger generation's doing, and I, I think it's both it's both good and worrisome. It's good because with fintech, there's you know no bricks and mortar costs are driven way down, so there's a lot cheaper solutions out there. So I think that's that's great. Um, my only worry is that a lot of fintech appears to be free. It's mm-hmm. like wow, this is pretty good. I can get my credit report, my credit score for free. And I can get it as often as I want on, on my phone. I just punch in a few buttons and here we go. Well, nothing in life is free. That's not how it works. And so when you punch in all your information, you give the company access to your entire credit history. They now know everything about you. And you will find that those free offers end up, you know, you, you start getting a whole lot of emails offering you this and that. And, hey, here's a short-term loan. Here's another loan. Here's a car loan. Here's a mortgage. They know everything about you so they can target the offer right at you specifically. So that's the worrisome side about some aspects of fintech that now there's that much more information out there. So, you know, I'm not saying avoid it. I'm just saying have your eyes open, understand that nothing is free, and make sure you're making a decision that's in your best interest. So I feel kind of lucky that we both have you and Blair sitting here, uh, and you're both licensee insolvency trustees. You've you've seen, you've heard, you've been doing this for a while, in some cases longer than the other. Uh, what do you guys see in the next 20 years? What kind of trends do you see popping up for consumers? Well, I guess off the top of my head, I would say I think we're going to see continued increasing levels of debt. I mean, that's what we've seen the last 20 years. Our our debt level keeps going up and up and up. I mean, in Canada today, it's, you know, we're closing in on a debt-to-income ratio of something like 170%, which is a massive number. So wow. that means if if I if I earn a dollar every year, I probably have a dollar seventy worth of debt. And part of that's fueled by the real estate boom. I get that. It's it's not entirely as, as scary as it may sound, but I think more debt is something that we're we're definitely gonna see. And and as Blair mentioned with the fintech, I think we're gonna see more technology to deal with with that debt. So Again, some scary things, but perhaps some positive things as well. Yeah, and I think with that technology, sorry to interrupt, I know Blair is going to say something, but um, the availability of of buying more, of consuming more uh, through the technology too, right? I mean, look at o- online shopping and consumerism compared to the bricks and, uh, bricks and mortar. I mean, they're having a really challenging time, uh, but I could buy pretty much anything I want online these days. Oh, absolutely. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as online. That exactly. wasn't even a thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and now you're right. You uh, push a few buttons on your phone and it, it shows up to your door tomorrow. So yeah. Oh, yeah. a Amazon. lot easier yeah. to spend money. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the one-click ordering and sometimes even same day in Vancouver yep. or, or Toronto. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and Doug, I agree with you on the trends. There's nothing that I've seen that tells me that we're working through this, this debt problem and you know eventually everyone's going to come down to you know, ha- having no debt. I, I don't think so. Um, I think what I'm seeing too, you know, there's the immediacy of purchase, but I'm also seeing some some worrisome trends. You know, uh, there was a, an employer uh, that was gotten the news, I think, over the summer here that they had a new product where they would pay you every day that you worked. So you'd come home from your shift and you'd pay a small fee for this service, but you would get your day's wages in your account that day. And so I thought that was just a terrible idea. Your bills don't come every day. Your bills come in chunks, and having your money come in chunks is actually a good thing. You can match it better with your bills. Um, But I think it might be more of a symptom of the gig economy. You know, everyone needs to have a couple side hustles that people are just going to work, get their money quickly, and hopefully not spend it on on debt. But uh, I think it's it's not a positive outlook from my perspective. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I guess there's two ways to look at that. And, and you're right, my hydro bill comes once a month, but there's no reason if I'm not if I'm getting paid every single day, I could actually send money to hydro every single day if I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if my bill is a uh, hundred bucks a month, well, if I get paid every week, I could send them twenty five bucks every week on payday. So um, I, I think it's both good and bad. If you're you know, subject to the gig economy, which let's face it, a lot of people are. I know you and I both meet with lots of people who don't have one full-time job. They've got two part-time jobs because that's all they can get. So if that's the case, okay, then you've got to shift your your uh, spending patterns and the way you pay your bills around to match it. If you get paid twice a week, well, pay all your bills twice a week then. Um, and that's one advantage of technology now that you can certainly do that. I think, too, uh, with this availability of the technology that we're getting more and more of, I'd like to hope that we're going to get better at managing our debt. But um, what are the kinds of things that we can pay attention to to not fall into that trap, do you think? Well, I think being conscious of, of what's happening out there. So your credit card statement says right on it how long it's going to take you to pay it off if you only make the minimum payment. Be conscious of that and understand that just making your minimum payment is a financial disaster if you've got a high interest credit card. So I think being aware is is the number one thing, understanding what's happening, and then you can take actions to, to mitigate against those forces. Doug Hoyes, that's who we've been talking to, hoyes.com is his website, H-O-Y-E-S dot com. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Thank you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about helping someone with a debt problem. And I think it's a really important topic because I feel like we're family members, close friends, community. They're the first ones to know that somebody or often can be the first group to know that someone's in trouble Mm -hmm. and you want to help and you don't know how. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes. Yeah, that's right, Elena. I often say about debt, you know, so many people suffer in silence. And when they break that silence, usually it's to very trusted friends, family members, their immediate network. And quite often, you know, almost every week I'm on the phone at least or meeting with somebody where it's not their situation we're talking about. They're calling on behalf of maybe it's an elderly family member, maybe it's a young family member, but it's somebody in a tough situation uh, where they know the person needs help, but, you know, they're trying to help them through it. So today's segment is about how do you help somebody through a debt problem. Okay. So if you're if you are concerned about a financial situation or crisis that someone you know is facing or they've come to you for help, what is it, or the first couple of things to keep in mind? Mhm. Yeah, the first one I would say is to really understand, you know, you can't make somebody seek help. You can't force them to suddenly get on a, on a program, you know, can't force someone to file a bankruptcy or do a proposal, even if you know in, the, in your heart of hearts and you've done all the research this is the best thing for them, the person has to be willing and ready to take the next step. Fair so enough. sometimes I see people where, you know, you can tell, hey, they're not here of their own free will. And it's a very difficult meeting if someone feels like, you know, a solution is being pushed upon them by even a well-meaning friend or family member. So realize all you can do is give people information. You can give them the tools, but they really have to take the next step to solve their problem. And they've got to agree that it actually is a problem that they want to solve. I like the fact that you've included the idea that um, uh, the emotional connection that people have to their money and mm-hmm. their finances and their debts and their, their situation in general, it's significant. 
and it's and it and it's there's a myriad of things that people are dealing with or, or mm-hmm. holding on to. Oh, yeah. You know, our relationship with our bank, sometimes a lot of people have that as a view of their self-worth. You know, I've been with X bank for 30 years. They know me when I walk in, you know, they say hi to me and things like that. And that's all great. I can understand that. Um, but a lot of the times, you know, you're so worried about, um, you know, that type of a perception that you cycle through emotions like shame, like guilt, um, anger, and, and resentment about being in this situation. And a lot of the times people are so hard on themselves. And you can just see when they come in for that first meeting, they've just been, you know, wearing all these emotions and been, you know, self-critical for so long about the situation they find themselves in. So you can't force someone to make, to, to seek help, but do be aware of some of the emotions that are really bubbling below the surface when it comes to money. That you may have no idea that they're dealing with or having or, or feeling at that point. That's right. So what are the first couple of general steps that you can take if someone's coming to me looking for help dealing with their debt? What, what are some of the things I should think about? Yeah, so starting at the very basic, so sit down and add it up. So get you know, a blank sheet of paper here. Let's figure out exactly how much is owed and to whom. Um, So it'd be impossible to solve the debt problem unless we know exactly what we're shooting at. So, you know, if you sit down with just a sheet of paper, here's the creditor, here's the minimum payment, um, here's the balance owing on it, here's some notes about it. Uh, But just getting that one view of what's actually being faced here, that's really important to start is just by adding it up. Okay. And then I guess you'd have to, because the person might not have it in sort of a priority Mm -hmm. of most important needs to be paid versus, you know, the the want versus the need or the fixed versus the flexible yeah. cost too, right? So that that's important. Yeah. So what we need to do there, once we've got a good sense of, you know, what the debt situation looks like is to actually make a plan on how we're going to tackle it. And let's, you know, assume first, we're going to try to get out of this under our own volition, under our own steam. So the way that we come at that is we try to set down a priority order for the debt. So let's list all the debts out on a page. Let's order them by interest rate. So the highest interest rate first. Mm. If there's some payday loans or installment loans, those could easily be double or two and a half times what a credit card would cost there. Um, And then also put a column for minimum payments. So the idea is on a monthly basis, you make all the minimum payments because you just have to um, if if you're going to try to get out of this. Um, But any extra money that you have, you devote to the highest priority debt first, the highest interest rate debt first. Now, you've got to make sure this is a realistic budget. And if it's the case that after we've been through all the minimums, there's literally no money left to start paying down the debt, well, then that says that the strategy is not going to work for you. All you're going to be doing is paying minimums for you know, 20, 30, 40 years or more there, but it's a good exercise to go through and say, well, if I paid all the minimums and I threw a little bit extra, could I get out of debt? So you want to see if that plan will work, um, but if it won't, then you press on to others. Exactly. Um, and I like the idea that you know, you've know you got a licensed insolvency trustee in a sit-down meeting that you can figure out. If you can't figure it out, then get some help to be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Find the source. Yeah, so you want to understand why is this person having financial difficulties. So, um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, well, they retired at 60 and their full benefits didn't kick in until 65 and now they're 64. So we know what's happened the last four years. They've had to subsidize a little bit of their lifestyle or their living expenses onto credit. But we know at 65, they're going to be in a better situation. They're going to get their full pension benefits. Okay. Sometimes it's when we start to dig in and we see, well, what's all these cash advances? Where is this going? And then as you speak more and more to the person, 
person, you realize, well, their whole social life right now revolves around the casino. And it's not always just gambling there. That's a piece of it, but it's the only way that they see their friends. It's the only social interaction that they might get. So you really want to understand what's the source of this debt? Is it something that's going to resolve itself? Like something that's, you know, they're just going to age out of it at 65? Or is this speaking towards a larger problem? Maybe there's a budding addiction or some social isolation um, that the financial is just a symptom of a bigger overall problem. Interesting. And that's and that's really digging that's really digging in a bit too, which which is which is really necessary and important, I think, if you're really mm-hmm. wanting to help somebody. Yeah. Um, I like this idea that you've included if it, if it seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. So if I'm looking at something and I'm going, oh, I don't know about that. I've never heard about that. Or what's that? That's a that's a good clue to take some action. Yeah, we want to say, you know, we use the phrase check for safety. So if someone's come to you for help, you know, especially if it's maybe an elderly relative, they might not know about all these scams that are happening right now. I'm getting almost daily calls from Service Canada because my social insurance number has been compromised. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, the CRE <laughs> scam, you know, a year ago was everywhere and now it's not. Yeah. Um, you know, there's romance scams. There's a bunch of things that are out there, you know, new and innovative ways to separate a trusting person from their hard-earned money. So, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that the person who's come to you for help, one of the sources of that is not that they're really being taken advantage of. So asking for help, we know it's not easy uh, to know someone is struggling, whatever, however they're struggling. Uh, But I think just reassuring them that there's help out there. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to help somebody and if you can validate, hey, you know, I've heard this guy on CKNW or this team on CKNW talking about how they help people with debt. Uh, you're not going to be judged. You just come on, come on in. Again, people delay too long to have that type of a meeting with a trustee. Even if we don't have the solution, um, that type of a meeting, just putting everything out on the table can be hugely helpful and cathartic to help the person move forward. Let's talk about the things not to do if someone comes to you for and asking for help. Yeah, so the number one thing, blame and shame. <laughs> so please do not do this. Um, as, a, as a human to my listeners out there, this is what sends people into downward spirals of depression and self-hate and self-injury and all of that. Um, people already feel bad enough when they get, in, get into a debt situation. Oftentimes, and I tell my colleagues this, when people are calling us, you know, often we're the only positive people they've spoken to in a whole lot of time because the collection agents that phone them, they're about as negative and as downtrodden as you could ever be to a person. So if someone's coming to you for help, blame and shame is about the worst thing that you could do. You'll just tell them, hey, this is a stupid thing for me to do. Let me just put everything back onto my shoulders. Now, there's some real hard things too, or in terms of physical things uh, that you should not do. And mm-hmm. co-signing loans, I think, is one of the most important things to mention. Yeah. So absolutely. If you think, hey, the easy answer here is this person's going to consolidate their debts and they just need me to sign on the dotted line so that I can be responsible. Uh, if they can't pay, please don't do that. Don't go down that road of starting to guarantee someone else's debts. You've just made a problem that was solely financial now hugely emotional because of their relationship. And quite often it doesn't help the problem. You really need someone to go through a situation, go through a process, meet with a trustee, get some counseling to fix the underlying problem. Uh, The other one using credit to support someone else. Yeah. So you know, just be aware if you're going to put yourself into a very tough or precarious financial situation, you might be helping that person, but keep in mind your own financial stability at the same time. And the best, uh, one of the best suggestions we've got is to give Sands and Associates a call. They've got offices all over British Columbia. The number, it's a 1-800 number, 661-3030. So 1-800-661-3030. Or go to the website, check it out. There's a ton of information on it. Sands-trustee.com.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Sophie Salcido on the line with us. She's a wealth advisor at Van City with 20 years of experience providing financial advice. She loves what she does. And you're going to hear that as we talk about this very, very important topic, children and money. Uh, I know that I make judgments all the time when I see kids with their money or I see their parents and go, how are they ever going to teach their kids how to deal with money if the parents are so bad at it? And uh, so we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics within sort of within that realm with Sophie. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start right off the top. Why do you think it's so important to teach children about money? Well, I just think it's the most important topic that I can talk about. And it's actually for me a real personal cause. So number one reason really is that financial skills and learning about money and how to use it well, it's the foundation for your life. So it's going to set the trend for your financial skills for the rest of your life. And in fact, if most of us think back, many of our, many, if not most of our habits and attitudes about money, where were they formed? They were formed likely in childhood. So it's super important. Absolutely. Boy, oh boy, I can just think of the, my, hear mm-hmm. my dad's voice in the yeah. back of my head, right? Yeah, around the kitchen table, all the exactly. discussions, right? Put that yeah. money aside, make sure you save 10%, all of that stuff. It's not Why what you make, it? it's what you save. I remember my dad saying that again and again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Why is it so personal for you, Sophie? Well, I think I did get some good money habits. I've I've um, done a lot of good things. I didn't. I was always a saver. I bought my first condo in the early '90s when I was 24 um, with my own money, and so and I know a lot of that came about because I had some lessons early on that maybe weren't the best use of financial skills and money. And for some reason, it just taught me to do the opposite and to create my own security. And so a lot of that came. Uh, it just built those skills inside me to create that for myself. Wow, excellent. So let's talk about the ways that that parents can start incorporating good financial lessons uh, into parenting and with their kids and how to figure that out. Where do yeah. they start? Yeah, so the first, the first lesson, um, I'll give you a couple here for younger children, and then we can go into a couple for teens. Yes. But the very first thing to start with, and I think it was just mentioned in one of our quick little comments here, was talking, tell your financial stories. You need to talk to the children and talk to your spouse and have the children, even within earshot, talking about your financial stories and your histories. So if someone's laid off from work, you must not hide that from the child. It has to be told in a manner that they can handle, but that needs to be discussed. These are the best lessons. So you've got to tell them what you did right or your family did right and what you did wrong, and they're going to learn that way. That's so interesting because it's so counterintuitive, right? We tend to shield uh, right. children, and, and we were shielded as children, I think, or at least I know I mm-hmm. was from anything bad. Yeah, well, but and, that's, and that's the problem, actually, isn't it? Because I've equated it now to looking back to our Depression-era generation, who I loved those guys, those ladies and men who saved so hard and paid their homes off. And why do you think they did it? Why did they save the elastic bands? Because around the table, when they were little, they were told, don't waste anything. Yeah. Dad's out of a job. Mom's, mom has to stay home now. Whatever it was, and they had a lesson young, and it carried them through their life. Yeah, I think you're making a great point, So. Uh, Sorry, pardon me. Uh, you're making a great point, um, Sophie, just about how families should talk about money. And I see it, um, you know, definitely with couples where sometimes one member of the couple, and it's quite often the male member, but not always, but they take all of the responsibility, all of the decisions. And the female member or the other spouse, um, you know, if something happens to that person who's made all the decisions, they just don't know where to turn. You know, it can be very, very disorienting. 
Yeah, and so I encourage my clients to make sure both spouses are coming in because I, I've seen it time and time again where one person is left. And, and like you said, the most important thing is who are you going to call? Who's going to be there to help you? I know you've got yeah. a couple for young children that we should I be do. telling. Yeah, go. Yeah, so the next one would be uh, very simple, but just um, bring them with you grocery shopping and have little talks here and there about what's the best price today for this product or why do we pay more? Is the quality better? Is it, is it, not, is it okay to buy the lesser cost product? So that's important. Um, a couple for teens. Number one there would probably be about um, getting them to learn how to budget. So if they, you're going to give them an allowance or an amount of money for back-to-school shopping, just stick to that amount and really teach them how they've got to make choices to stick within that limited amount because that's how we all live, isn't it? We all have a limit <laughs> month to month. You have to learn how to live with that. And um, even something simple like um, make them responsible for their cell phone bill. So make them pay that, and, and they're going to maybe have to have a small job to pay that off, but maybe they'll learn the diligence about being being wise about how they spend that money on that bill. Unfortunately, I think, Sophie, they're going to end up being the only kid in their group that's uh, <laughs> having to do that, right? Because that's just not the norm today. It's not. And so as a parent, I'm a parent too, right? You have to you have to learn to not care about that, don't you? At the end of the day, what I say to myself, because I've been doing this job for 20 years, I've watched a lot of people walk through my door, and my mandate with, with my own child is I don't want her home at 30 in my basement. I really don't. And so I, my job is to teach her the skills to get her out there so she can stand her own two feet, hopefully. Obviously, there may be extenuating circumstances, but that's just my overall goal. That's a good goal. The other thing I think of, too, you know, and I mentioned it as we when we started this, is that sometimes the parents aren't so good with money, and so the idea of having to pass along some good ideas or some ad- helpful advice to their kids, yep. they're just dumbstruck like they don't have a clue where to start. Yeah, and I under- totally understand that. If you don't have anybody around you or just didn't have the opportunity to learn that, then that's where you're coming to see someone like myself to get those skills and get that help. And I would say bring your children in to some of your financial appointments. I've had clients bring their young children into my investment appointments where we're talking about the stocks and the bonds, etc. And I would, I would also say there's nothing wrong with bringing in, them in for part of the meeting. Maybe you don't want them to know exactly how much money is available in the family, for instance. Right. So just bring them in for half the meeting and then they can go sit in another area of the and wait for you outside the meeting. But but again, a couple of things are happening there. They're learning your stories. And number two, they're learning to be comfortable coming into our environment. How often have I heard that people are intimidated walking into their bank, their credit union to talk to somebody and that should not be the way we're here to help you. Yeah, Sophie, I think you're hitting on such a great point there um, because, you know, it breeds familiarity, yeah. right? You know, being in that environment and it gives you confidence as well um, because I think a lot of people grow up in a household where it's not polite to talk about money um, and then they sometimes think, okay, well, I'm when I'm dealing with the bank, I need to be very polite, which means I'm not going advan- to advocate for my interests. I'm going to take mm-hmm. what's put in front of me. I'm not going to shop around because that's the polite way to do it. And, you know, people take nothing else away here. It's, you know, that time for politeness is gone. You've got to be in the driver's seat of your own financial future. Yeah, you definitely have to know what questions to ask and exactly put yourself, that's a very great point, advocating for yourself and getting the best advice. And that's where you can go to a few, couple of people to get a couple of opinions and advice too. One of the things I was thinking about, Sophie, you're so smart around money and you've been smart around it for a really long time. Um, It's not always the easiest thing to do in terms of adopting a new 
thought yeah, process around mm-hmm. money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And the idea of being a good financial role model, um, there's got to be, what, three or four or five things that if you're wanting to change, because I, I believe it's never too late to change, that somebody could take this this new position on and be smarter about it. Yeah, and so uh, things I talk about with clients and, and people I meet are, what's going to motivate you? I've done so many financial plans for people where I, the outcomes are great. You know, if they follow this, if they follow A, B, C, D, they're going to get to E, but it doesn't happen a lot. And it doesn't happen because they're not motivated to make that change. And so I always tell people, you've got to dig a little deep and find out what is going to motivate you. So, And that's what you've got to put at your forefront. If I do A and I'm diligent about saving this money, it's helping me get to B. And B is where you got to go. So that would be a good thing to take on as a role model for your kids, right? Yep. Yep. Teaching them the, those those tactics too. Yep. And now I understand why you think uh, having your having your teenager pay their own cell phone bill is a good idea. <laughs> it's if you don't teach them, then when are you going to teach them? Mm-hmm. You don't want to be paying the phone bill forever. <laughs> exactly. I hear yeah. you. I hear you yeah. loud and clear. Yeah. What are the most challenging areas that you found for? Uh, for parents to start to talk to their kids and train their children better in the in financial financial decisions. Well, I think you touched on it slightly. And as parents, we we want to help. We want to pick them up when they fall and, and help them as much as we can and get them that good start. And we've just got to be so careful. We don't go overboard. So if you loan your child, I do this with my own daughter. I'm not afraid to say it. If I loan her some money because we're out and she wants to buy a book or something, it's a, you know, whatever number, number of dollars. I'm really conscious about going home and that day or whenever it is, making sure I ask for that money back. That's a really important lesson isn't it? We have mm-hmm. to pay the money back. We borrow most people. You do in the yeah. real world. Yeah, no, exactly. no free money. <laughs> yeah, no free money. And it's just a small habit. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I can put the money where I want. I can put it back into a bank account for her or whatever. But it's just the habit, right? Teaching those habits young, are so it's so much easier when they're young. I remember being very resentful of uh, those kinds of lessons that my father would try to teach me, right? I mean, and, and, and I can yeah. see that as being something that's going to happen today as well, because it seems we bend over backwards to help our kids or to give our kids as much as we possibly can. And, and I think the other side then, let's say instead of that, if you're having difficulty with that, then the other step is to just help them get a job. Now my daughter has um, been cat-sitting, so someone asked me, hey, could you watch our cat for us when we're away? And I said, I took a minute to think, and I thought, well, yeah, I could, but can I just have my daughter? Because she can walk the block now to go up there and do it. So she's been doing it. So find a job to empower them then, to, to set you free, let's say, set the parent free from that a little bit, and get them empowered to get that money in themselves that you can then help them figure out how to budget and put towards things for them. Yeah, and I think empowerment is such is just such a great word to use in this situation because in this day and age we get bombarded with so much stuff that feeling empowered is difficult regardless of how old you are uh, when it comes especially to money things. Well, and it's also about teaching them about the needs versus the wants, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They have to learn to understand you, you shouldn't need or you shouldn't want everything you see advertised or what your friends all have. You've got to, you've got to think for yourself what's the best course of action for you in the long term. And that's hard. I know that's hard to teach them. But just be aware of it so you can try when the little lessons come up. You can reinforce some things that are important. Now, we're just winding up. We've got about a minute left. Resources that you think, uh, after listening to this discussion, where I could go to get more information. 
Yeah, I'm going to give you um, one website link. I've looked at it myself for quite a lot of time, and I love it because it's just really simple. So it's great, simple ideas, and it's called 360 Degrees of Financial Literacy. And it's just a nice tool. You're going to go in there. You're going to see um, topics for tweens and teens, uh, student debt, all sorts of things. That's a really good one. And I think student debt, thank you for just even mentioning that because that's the next step, right? Yeah. For, exactly for kids today to to know that they've got to get another to get more education uh, and the cost that's connected with that is enormous yeah we need a plan for that exactly yeah that's wonderful thank you so much Sophie we've been talking with Sophie Salcedo who's a wealth advisor at Van City over 20 years experience providing financial advice if you'd like more information about Sophie or to try to get a hold of her easy to do vancity.com is the website and uh, there's just so much good information out there thank you so much again Sophie thank you it's been my pleasure for information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, tips for 2020. Exciting Re- times. It is. Resolutions mm-hmm. and goals. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, as I do prep for to do this show with you, went through them all, and there's some great suggestions. Oh, good. And, and I really liked how you, how you approach them. Not you know you know take a look at think about mm-hmm. uh, because resolutions and goals can be really daunting for people. Yeah, and I think the first thing is you know to kind of be kind to yourself and forget about the past, right? So don't dwell on oh in this past year you know I, I really screwed up this or that. You know we'll talk about that a little bit to learn from it, but the whole point is what are you going to do next? What are you going to do going forward in twenty twenty that's going to make things better off this year for you financially? Yeah, to reset reset some some habits maybe. Yeah, exactly. And yep. resetting. See, again, it's just your language is really good. It's mm-hmm. not scary. <laughs> we try. <laughs> you got to do this right now. No, yep. just kind of think about this. Okay, so let's go. Resolution, the, the, the first thing you should think about. Yeah, so the first thing is there's no surprise to anybody who listens to this show or who deals in finances generally is so much of our personal financial lives come down to just having a budget. So the key first resolution is either to refresh your budget or to start from scratch if you don't have one. All right, and how do you do? How do you do that? How do you, can, can you sort of go through what, how to start with a budget, or at least tracking what you're bringing in, or how do you start? Yeah, so a couple ways you can start with a budget. You know, the important thing is just to find a, a method that works for you. So if it's a simple spreadsheet, that's great. If you like Excel, if it's something written down, some people really like the tactile of writing the numbers down, adding it up each month. Or there's a bunch of apps that are out there. You know, some are very automated. Something like Mint.com. You know, it'll take a bunch of your spending on your debit cards or your credit cards categorize it and help you a little bit. But I'm not that much of a fan of that because I think it removes too much the step of the actual decisions of budgeting. If it's too automatic, then I don't find you get the insights from there. So whether it's electronic or offline, that's fine. Um, You know, one thing that people tend to really have trouble with um, is to look at those irregular expenses each month. So what, or each year. So I encourage people to take a look, go back over, you know, the last six or 12 months of your bank statements, your credit card bills, and try to pinpoint some of those irregular expenses, you know, whether it might've been property taxes, 
versus if you're a homeowner uh, or maybe a significant you know car repair. We know the car is going to need service once or twice a year. You can probably you know uh, budget for a few of those things, but take a look at those irregular expenses and try to build those into your budget as well. Um, and I think just the act of doing it, of act of preparing the budget, of keeping track of it each month, that's going to have huge ramifications, huge positive things, just by making you attend to the money that you're spending each month. So if you do nothing else, just keep a budget for this year or refresh the budget that you've already got, focusing on making sure those irregular expenses are integrated so they don't come and hit you um, unexpectedly throughout the year. I like the idea that you included taking a look at those small, the small expenditures too. Mm-hmm. You know, the $5 here and the $5 there if you're buying yourself a coffee every day yeah. or a latte or wh- whatever it is. Um, and and. Boy, it changes when you add it up over yeah. the year. Oh, even my wife and I, over the past, you know, couple of months, we've been living above a Starbucks and we looked at our Starbucks expenses and <laughs> you know what? We went out and we bought a coffee maker the other week and we're like, we'll have this paid off in about three weeks or so. Yes. Uh, just as good and within our living room as opposed to going downstairs. So yeah. so yeah, a bunch of those little things that you might not pay attention to when you add them up on a monthly basis, it actually can be significant and can trigger a couple of behavior changes. Yeah. And that would be hard if you lived above a coffee place <laughs> convenient, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Second resolution you think that you think is important. Yeah, this is, you can say it a couple different ways, whether whether it's, you know, pay yourself first or make sure you're putting something away. The way I've called it here is have a personal savings priority. And that word priority is really important because there's so much science that's out there. If you leave it until the last thing that you do is to put money aside from savings, you know what? You're going to find the money's not there. It's not there this month. The next month something comes up and two or three months from now, there's always something that comes up at the last moment that makes it very difficult for someone to save. So what you need to do is to make it a priority before you've even considered how the other money is going to get spent what's your personal savings priority and a couple things that you'd want to knock off you know first off is to start to save for an emergency Um, there's great, great um, feeling that if you have a three to six month emergency fund, generally that can get you through a whole lot of tough times. You know, if you've got a a job loss or income interruption or different things like that, having that emergency fund can make all the difference in bridging you from a tough situation. But just about every client that I see, they don't have the emergency fund. As soon as some shock to the system happens, they can't withstand anything like that. Um, So an emergency fund is a big thing. Uh, If you've already got an emergency fund, well, why don't you start to save for the holiday that maybe you're planning on taking? And in the past, if you've put that on credit cards or, you know, just tried to save madly at the, up until you're departing, that can be a lot of stress. It's a whole lot nicer to take a vacation if you've made it a savings priority, you've put things away every month, and then when you go away, you've got that money saved already. Fair enough. What's the third uh, tip for financial resolutions and habits that you want to cover in this one? Well, this one we've called it hit the ground running. And, you know, to me, it's to operate your finances with a sense of purpose for 2020. So it's not just aim to survive, you know, aim to thrive. What are you going to achieve this year that's really going to help your finances turn around? And where I started off on the top, let's not dwell on the past, and that's true, but let's learn, try to learn some lessons from the past year. So what worked well for you last year? What goals did you successfully accomplished. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, I accomplished nothing. But hey, you know, did you pay your bills on time, even if it was just the minimums? Um, You know, did you not get taken to court for your bills? You know, there's a bunch of things that we do. We don't give ourselves any credit for. uh, But perhaps there's a few things that you can be happy about. But then also take an honest look at where there's some things where you fell short. You know, was keeping paperwork a real obstacle for you this year? Did you pay a couple of bills just a few days late and you hit some big interest charges? And if you were more organized, you wouldn't have had to pay those interest charges. So try to learn what you can um, from looking at what happened in 2019. Um, And then also start thinking about tax time. And that's true. You know, we're not done 2019, but you better be ready for taxes to be filed shortly. Um, You need to understand, you know, are you going to owe money when you file? Are you going to have some tax refunds coming back to you and start to plan for those funds either being 
required from you or funds coming back to you and what you're going to do about those. So if you could say one thing or a couple of things of to help people figure out a goal for the, for the uh, next year, what would they be? Well, I think a couple of goals that people would have, you know, the number one goal that I work with people on is to become debt free. So, you know, if that's your goal in 2020, I think that's one of the best goals somebody can have. Um, you know, if that's something that just seems so far out of reach to you, you know, you've got a big student loan or a big mortgage and while well, debt-free is not going to be possible for you, well, at least feel as though you're managing your debt right. So, you know, a goal for 2020 might be, hey, I'm not going to pay any credit card interest this year. I'm going to make sure all my bills are paid on time. If I use a card, I'm going to pay it off each month. Um, but if you're someone that's dealing with a ton of debt, you know, this could be the time for you to sit down, start to consider it. You need to start working with a professional to deal with your debt situation. Um, You know, a bankruptcy that starts in 2020 can often finish in 2020. So this could be a year of someone going from a very hopeless situation to being completely debt-free and moving forward owing nobody anything. Now, is that a case of just writing, starting to write all those things down, those the, the constant uh, places where you're paying money or sort of your debt picture? I think that's where it starts, Elaine. You know, so much of, of our modern life now, it's just so easy to pay everything with a tap. Um, you know, we very rarely carry cash. And so many things just happen automatically each month, whether it's our Netflix subscription or Spotify or, or different things. Right. So it just becomes too easy to have money like sand going through your fingers. So I think the first thing before you get on, on top of your debt problem is, is just to figure out where does the money go each month. So as we talked about refreshing or, or starting a budget just from scratch, they're just starting to really track those important things. Um, I like the reminder about your credit card statement too for folks to remember. Yeah, so we, we talk a bunch about that. There's a great disclosure. You know, if you're wondering where you start and you need some motivation, I would say sit down and look at your credit card bill if you're carrying any sort of a balance. And sometimes some credit card companies have it right on the front page, something you have to dig in a little bit, but you'll find it will tell you how long it's going to take you to get out of debt if all you do is make the minimum payments each month. And, you know, there are some numbers like, you know, $6,000 of debt can be on the 40-year payment plan, four zero payment plan. It's ridiculous, insane. Um, so you definitely want to sit down and look at what's the time you're going to be if you just keep doing what you're doing of just paying minimums. And is there any hope when it comes to credit cards and interest rates that you pay? I mean, can you do anything about that? Yeah, there's a bunch of things that you can do. Now, starting at kind of the easier to the more severe, you know, you can try to switch to a lower interest rate. You know, you can consider a low rate card. A lot of banks will offer those. You just have to ask for them. Um, You could try to simplify a bunch of your debts by consolidating them together. So by trying to combine a bunch of cards at a high interest to a lower rate, maybe it's a consolidation loan, or maybe Mm -hmm. it's just a card you can just put everything on together. Um, And if those things aren't possible, or if you've tried them and they're not solving the problem, well, a consumer proposal is a great outcome to get you back to owing nobody anything, reduce and eliminate all of the interest, um, and get the debt down to what you can afford to repay in 2020. And if that's uh, something that you're thinking about, a consumer proposal, this is where Sands & Associates come in. Go and see Blair or any of the 17 offices, right, in British Mm -hmm. Columbia now. Uh, and sit down with someone and and figure out a plan to be debt-free uh, for the following year. 1-800-661-3030, that's the number, or visit the website, SANS. Uh, you can uh, book online at sans-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.